Welcome back to Out of the Main. I am one of your co-captains, Tom, seated here in Studio Plan B with my co-captain, John. Hello yeah, there. Your, your tier B. Tier B what? Uh, assistant. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Second mate, right? Yes. Exactly. Second rate, second mate. That, that works. Well, today we are here to talk about what is probably my favorite, if not second favorite, of the Marx Brothers, Groucho. Mm-hmm. It's, it actually says Gaucho on your page. Wait, what? Gaucho. Oh, I have the wrong notes. It'll oh, still apply. Most you, of it will apply. Yeah. Oh, Gaucho. Yeah, yes. that makes more sense. Yes. The Steely Dan record. Right. Yeah, I heard. Okay. Why are we back to Steely Dan again, you ask? Why are we back to Steely Dan again? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we did Asia, and people are probably wondering, you know, why are we so quickly back to Steely Dan again? And I think that this one... Um, kind of goes with Asia because that's the big debating point, I think, amongst some Steely Dan people is did they jump the shark after Asia in mm. the making of Gaucho? And so I think you can't talk about one without examining the other. Yes. And as one of the uh, Rolling Stone reviewers at the time, I think they said uh, this marked the metaphor- metamorphosis that began with the royal scam is now complete. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming they're talking about sort of the evolution towards jazz and jazz influences. It certainly feels like a bookend to Asia to me. I guess the progression is continuing. It's certainly a different record. The most obvious being that it's less of a performance record, less you know, of the virtuoso solo work. It's much more about chill, vibe, groove, and things like that. A lot more space, even though we remarked when we were listening to Asia, how about how much Mm -hmm. space it had. But this one, you know, it kind of comes at a really interesting point. I mean, the band was troubled at the time, which we'll get into. But also, technology was at this tilting point where things were starting to happen from a technological aspect and different ways of uh, implementing that into the music was being sort of explored by everybody. So there's a lot of that that's going on here. Right there at 1979, t- 1980 is where the electronic side of music really starts to get in there. Yeah. And it sort of, in a way, it marks the end of Steely Dan in a, in a way. Yeah, to me it does. I, not to say that anything later isn't worth listening to, but this is the end of what would be the main era. The for run. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Because they sort of broke up even after, we'll get into that, but they broke up and then they reunite, they being Fagan and Becker. Yeah. They had personal problems. So in that way, and I did not know that going in. I just yeah. didn't realize where all the historical markers were. But when I realized that this is sort of an answer to Asia, but then also an abrupt ending to where they were going, that's interesting to me. It sets the stage, though, for the Nightfly, Fagan's solo album. In yes. a lot of ways, this was done, I think... I'm reading between the lines here. I feel like a lot of this was done in a way as a solo album, even though it's not credited that way. And I don't think Fagan would ever disrespect Becker and uh, you know downplay his involvement in this record. But it just feels like this this record in particular, Becker is really um, yeah, uh, Fagan is really manning the helm. Kind of. Yeah. Do you think we'll get into this track by track? But sonically. Do you find any interesting relevance to the year 1980? Now, obviously, the Yacht Rock kind of sound kept going. Yeah. But in 1980, I was just noticing that like the New York Times that year named this album the best album of the year in 80, mm-hmm. beating out Talking Heads, Remain in Light, and Joy Division's Closer. Oh, yeah. You can see where music was starting to head right there. Yeah, and New it, Wave was starting to get its, uh, and, and particularly New Wave from... England was starting to really 
kind of grab a hold of the charts a bit. And I wonder if that tamped down some of the performance aspect of this record. Just stylistically, were people starting to get over that whole thing? Or hmm. I don't know. Because here, here's my take going back onto that. So I, Asia, I felt like you, it would, they would set up a featured soloist, and the featured soloist would have the limelight. But the way that the if there are even any leads, and there's a few exceptions. Yeah, but, Steve Kahn plays a little bit, but it's it's not like solo. You know, it, it's more okay. Kind of add some flavor, add some vibe. Right. It's not a big like set up the solo, like you say. The, the way that the performance isn't like, hey, look at me, and the mix is not even like front and center. No the mix. No. Whereas you could say in a prior record, but all right, let's let, let's let Jay Graydon or Curry, or Larry Carlton just do their thing. A couple takes and we'll take the best one. Or you know, this yeah, is that. I think to a certain degree, there was a new way of because of technology. There was a new way that people were starting to make records, and a lot of that was uh, not let's record a band and get our basics and then overdub on top of that. So by saying the basics, maybe drums, uh, bass part one or two guitar parts and main keyboard part and get that down, record that, and then add to it. In a lot of ways, now we were going to be doing things one track at a time. Let's get a drum track down. Mm. Okay, now let's add the bass. Now let's add a guitar. One at a time. And this album was done much more in that model. So I think with that in mind, it's a lot harder for you to sort of foresee the arrangement where you're going to set up a solo, you're going to have these kicks, or something like what happened with the Steve Gadd and Wayne Shorter solo section on Asia is not going to happen when you're conceiving of your drum part first, striping that down for four minutes, and then going back and adding parts later. That's interesting. So, yeah, because Asia was done much more so in the, the former format, right? Where it's Correct. like, let's get a band track down right and then we could add on top of that so yeah, remember they would record multiple bands mm-hmm. you know they would and that one band didn't necessarily give them the vibe they wanted they didn't like just swap out a player they brought in a whole new band they were trying to capture uh, a collection of at least four or five players as the main guts of the song so then what results for me anyways i feel like this is a much more structured record maybe yeah. that's what you were saying right planned out mapped out right less loosey-goosey for those reasons, I think I kind of like it less. And I know this isn't who wore best Asia or, right. but it's it kind of, that's what I'm saying earlier on. That's why yeah. you can't discuss one without the other. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always say that my favorite Steely Dan album is whichever one I'm listening to at the time. Yeah, that's good. But it is true that this is the one that has kept me most intrigued. Um, and I think some of that is because when I'm listening to it, I'm imagining or reconstructing in my mind the way it was produced. I'm hearing some of the technology technological things that they're starting to learn how to use. In some cases, they're inventing technology on the fly during the making of this record, you know. Um, But, you know, it's a 37-minute record. Seven songs. You know, and I swear I could talk about it longer than than 37 minutes. We probably will. Yeah. Um, But can I ask you, as a producer and an engineer, don't you think this, you alluded to it, so I want to make you admit it to it on tape. Isn't this a more pristine recording than Asia even? I have that written down in my notes. It is definitely cleaner and smoother recording than Asia. But the opposite side of that is people will say, yeah, but it kind of crossed the line from not feeling natural anymore. And I'll agree with that as well. I agree with both. I would say it comes at times it becomes sterile, to, it, a, yeah. which I'll tell it you where. It did win an award for most outstanding engineered album that year, the Grammy. So, you know, its sound quality was recognized for sure. Was it a time. different engineer than Asia? There was some overlap. 
there was some overlap, but as you'll see... This is Roger Nichols, right? Well, Roger Nichols was sort of their technical consultant. You had Gary Katz was the producer. A lot of the basic recording was done by, you know, um, Nichols was involved, but you had Elliot Shiner, you had Bill Schnee, you had Al Schmidt, you had guys like that for capturing these uh, organic sounds and all that. But... Roger Nichols was, he's the story of this album to me, because he was sort of a mad scientist guy, and he is the guy that invented some of the uh, infamous or famous electronics that are done on this record. So we'll get to that. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of unclear as to who did what role. But, you know, this was an album that at the time was the most expensive album Mm. recorded. Really? Uh, It took... Yeah, it's like a million-dollar budget. And they went over budget, didn't they? They went over that. And it was like three years to make, and um, there were a lot of reasons why. I had highlighted three basic reasons, and uh, one of them was just the perfectionism of it, Mm -hmm. is that they, uh, whether it was um, the the amount of takes that they would do, the minutiae they would go through to get things perfect— um, there's a story, you know, whether this needs citation or not, but the fade out on Babylon Sisters took 55 attempts for them to get it just right. Like just the actual level fade just out? Just the fade out. Uh, the pace of the fade. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's almost too absurd to believe, but yeah. <laughs> um, we know that they went through some tragedy, which you alluded to also. Um, which was? Well, there were multiple things that happened. Uh, Becker got hit by a. Uh, uh, New York taxi cab. This is during the recording? During the recording of it. Now, one thing to keep in mind with this record is that this is them now having spent time in L.A. Now they've come back to New York. Mm. Some of this record was recorded in New York, some in L.A., but now they're essentially back in New York and they're commenting on their experiences back in L.A. But, you know, here they are back in New York and, uh, as I said, Becker gets hit by a cab. His girlfriend... Dies of an overdose of heroin, Becker's. I guess. Yes, yep. in his apartment, and Becker himself gets hooked on heroin. So here he is hooked on heroin, working out of a wheelchair. You know, which oh goes back to my question: of How much did he contribute? He's credited with playing multiple instruments and all that stuff, but it makes me wonder how much he really contributed because this sounds so much like the precursor to Nightfly to me. Hmm. Um, and then the last one, there's an interesting story about a song called The Second Arrangement. And The Second Arrangement was a song that they really liked. They thought was going to be a high point of the record. And they had recorded what and assembled what they thought was a perfect take or at least the perfect set of basic tracks. And somehow it inadvertently part of it or all of it got erased by an engineer. God. And they made multiple attempts to reconstruct, rebuild, re-record, and they could never, of course, get to the point where they were satisfied with it. Now, whether they, you know what what was lost in their head was different than what they actually lost, and you know, and you're just in a mental state where you just screw it. I I don't even want to chase that anymore. Right. Yeah. You know? So you said, and um, well, going back to losing things and then trying to recreate it, <clears throat> you said Becker was on heroin. Yeah. D- doesn't isn't. Fagan admit to being on drugs at this point, and it's after this album that he sort of gets off drugs. I don't know that. I'm p- pretty sure you that's what some, I read. So yeah? after okay. the, this sort of all of the tragedy that they talked about, I think led him to sober okay. up, and whether or not that stuck or not, um, there was another. I don't know if you call it tragedy, but we'll probably get into the lawsuit too that emerges. I was just looking at that in my notes here, the yeah. Keith Jarrett one. Yes. 
Yeah. So Keith Jarrett sues him for uh, copyright infringement. On what song was that? Gaucho. Was that going to be Gaucho? I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. you're right. right. Which I want to, when we go to track by track, I hope you'll play a little of this other song by, uh, what is his name? Keith Jarrett called Long As You Know You're Living Yours. I can see the similarities. Okay, well, I know that um, Fagan admits to being heavily influenced by Keith Jarrett, so um, I, I know that they did reach an agreement. That much I did know. And he's credited um, as a songwriter, okay. so he had, right. had to admit at least being more than influenced, but yeah. Well, despite all of the criticism that it's been given over all the years, and, and you know, there's people that love it. There, I was just talking to somebody today that, you know, he agrees with me, that he just loves this album and can't believe that anybody that isn't willing to go this far into the Steely Dan catalog. Because there are people that say, I don't go any further than Asia. Really? Yeah. But um, it did it did really well commercially. It really did. So, um, as I said, it won Grammys and, you know, it uh, what did it go? Number nine I have on the U.S. album chart. Mm-hmm. So, a lot uh, of that may have been off the success of Asia, because, maybe right because people were eager for the next release. It was been three years, which is a long yeah. time back then. Yeah, you you need some staying power to make it that high on an album uh, chart, though. It, you yeah. know, it's not like a single that can flare up and be gone. It did have the benefit you know. of having Hey Nineteen on it and Babylon Sisters. Yep. So yep. those are two. Now back then, I'm trying to even put my own buying back into it. You didn't. You couldn't even go to say Blockbuster and put on the headphones and sample the record. So all you had to do was go on the faith of what mm-hmm. you're hearing on the radio. If I heard Hey 19 right. after hearing Asia, I would have bought that record in a heartbeat. You're right. right. You're right. You're right. I could see that for sure. Even if the reputation was, it's not as good as Asia. Right. Or it's more electronic. But yeah, yeah, when I hear that song, there's no question that this still fulfills all of my Steely Dan wants. Yep. Absolutely. Do you feel like uh, Hey 19, we're not getting the track by track, but does that feel like it's out of place on this record to you or no? Yeah, a little bit. Because I feel like this record, so this is why I want to just talk about it broadly. Somebody put it, uh, one, another Rolling Stone reviewer called it uh, melancholy meandering of Fagan. <laughs> and I do get a sense of that. So remember how we talked about how back in contemporarily, contemporaneously, yeah, you and I both kind of weren't into Steely Dan right. all that much. Because the hooks weren't accessible. The words were kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. His voice is a little off-putting. Yeah. All of that, I feel like, is on huge display with this record. That doesn't mean it's not good. Right. I just think it's more of an acquired taste. And Hey 19, to me, feels like it could have been cut right from Asia because there's some pop sensibilities to it. Yeah. I would advise the novice listener to approach this as if you're going to be listening to a jazz record that some people can't find jazz accessible. They yeah. don't, it all just sounds like notes. Beep, boop, beep, boop. Because so, this is not, to me anyway, I want to get your impression, because you love this record. To me, it's not as hooky and it's not as poppy. But if I go into this thinking this is a jazz record with some singing over it, then it's like, all right, I get it. This is cool. Well, what keeps me intrigued, as I said, this album keeps me the most intrigued, is a, a couple of things. One is, that keeps me going back, is that it is so nuanced. You know, a pop record you can hear three times and you've heard everything there is to hear. Yep. This record is so nuanced and it has so many little things going on that it keeps me coming back. And then lyrically, uh, I'm going to hit on, I don't normally hit on lyrics a lot when we talk about this stuff. I'm going to hit on lyrics a lot because the lyrics on this record are so vivid. The imagery, the storytelling, even when I can't make sense of them. <laughs> Which they is a lot for me. They still paint a picture. And I almost, at times, I don't go and want to know the meaning. You can look up, you know, people's interpretations of meanings. Sometimes once I know the meaning, it takes a little bit of the luster off. Because I think what draws me back is my mind continues to try and figure it out. There's a certain amount of ambiguity here, intentionally done, that keeps you coming back. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Well, and to me, a step before that is I need to be hooked sonically, and this record has that for sure. Yes. Which we'll get into in the track by track, but it's like, oh my God, you just yeah. goes back to everything we said about Asia. You can hear everything, including the air in the room. Yes. It's just amazing. There's almost no air in the room on this one, though, because, <laughs> because they recorded everything so like one at a time and close mic. True. true. You, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm being sarcastic. But, but there's air in the mix. I need it, to talk about the technology of this record, though. Um, yeah. This would have been probably digitally recorded, if I recall. Um, the I guess the thing I want to talk about the most is this Wendell. Wendell is Go ahead, often Mr. referred Wendell. to as a drum machine. It wasn't really a drum machine as much as the ability to trigger individual drum samples, which is so routine now. You know, every drum machine does that, or you have software that does it. But at the time, it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And... The story of Wendell actually starts earlier, as I learned. It goes all the way back to their second album, Countdown to Ecstasy, when they were doing Showbiz Kids. Donald wanted a very specific eight-bar drum loop, and he wanted it played a certain way, and then he just wanted that to run through the whole song. So they only recorded eight bars of drums. It's not like they ever went and recorded that whole song on drums. He just recorded eight bars, got the eight bars he wanted, told Gary Katz, "You you can loop that and do something with it, right? Okay. What song just I Showbiz Kids. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Can we play some of it just so we... Yeah, let's yeah. put it in context. Okay. So there's eight bars of drums, and they just loop that through the whole thing. Because... Fagan wanted a specific eight bars. He didn't want fills. He didn't want the drummer, uh, you know, jazzing it up, whatever it was. But you could see the beginning of this. Well, I want the drums to be exactly what I want them to be. Mm -hmm. So now we fast forward to Gaucho and uh, all the guys remember it somewhat differently, but it's some variation on Donald saying, you know, can't we just get a machine that can play it in time, on time, exactly what I want when I want it? And Roger Nichols said, uh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> Got to give me 150 grand. So they said, all right, they gave him 150 grand out of the budget. Out of a million-dollar budget, they gave him 150 grand to work on this thing that he claimed he could do, but they had no real witness of other than their trust in Roger. So he comes back eventually with this giant computer and screen, and what it does is it, it was able to capture sound so they would – spend all day getting the snare drum to sound exactly like they wanted. And they would go and pick out the one that they want. That snare hit right there. That's the one that's perfect. Let's get it the EQ right. Let's get the compression right. Let's get the room around it that we want. And they would then record that into this Wendell box. Do that the same with the hi-hat, with each tom, cymbal, kick drum, all of that, until they had these samples assembled inside of Wendell. And then they could trigger when they wanted the kick drum to play, when they wanted the snare drum to play. And in some cases, I think they also grabbed little, like, um, phrases or fills, and then they could trigger those when they wanted. So now 
they had to assemble this drum part. But at the time, there was no MIDI as we know it today, which is a communication, a way that you can have one synth control another synth or a drum machine provide you with a rhythm and then you could uh, um, use those clicks and hits and beats to trigger samples. And all locked to a time code. Right. But is they this... didn't have that at the time. Right. So they had to create these click tracks, which would just be, you know, click, 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 click. And that would be used to feed into this Wendell thing and tell it when to fire each part. So they'd have to go like the whole song, top to bottom, put all the kick drums down. Then they go back and go top to bottom and put all the snare drums down. Then they go and they put all the hi-hat parts down. Then they have to listen back and see if everything lines up. And when it doesn't, they have to adjust. And it would take them all day to fill, do one song till they got the timing of everything exactly what they wanted. And that was what Wendell did. And so on every one of these songs, I would say uh, four or maybe even five of them are heavily Wendell songs. So even when they're crediting a drummer like Steve Gadd or Jerry Mm -hmm. Murata, that drummer is not playing. They may have played the original samples, but they are not playing the drum part on those songs. And we'll... I'll point those out as we go. But going back to your Hey 19, that was the first uh, song that they used it on. They did, yep. really. It Listen is- close to that one, and you can hear the hi-hat, kick, and snare aren't exactly lined up right. They're okay. Really? But, so it's funny that their pursuit of perfection led to something that, well, it's kind of not really that perfect. Interesting. Well, And they must have also done, for certain songs, they must have done whole passages of kit. Because there is a... There's a couple that are, yeah. There was a Jeff Beccaro quote where I think it was the song Gaucho. Gaucho. 46 different takes to get together. Edited, which back then, remember, weren't they saying that he could usually get the whole drum take done in the first First two or two seconds, third try. So now you're taking 46 takes to get something that, to your point, is not exactly perfect. So they're either doing micro editing Mm -hmm. or they're doing building it a piece, you know, a hit at a time on Wendell or a combination of the two. But that was how they were assembling just the drum part. Mm -hmm. And they would spend days just to get a drum part, whether it was massively edited or synthetically created, going back to the major difference between this and Asia. And there's, I think, now I wouldn't have detected it in Hey 19 had you not told me that whole story. But there are certain songs on this record that we'll get to that to me the drum track ends up sounding very sterile. Mm-hmm. You can see that yep. feel there's no human element to it. Yeah. And like that, to me, that taints this album a little bit because of what I know went into Asia, which is let's assemble this jazz band to create a session. Right. And then record a song over it. To me, that's just, I don't know, cooler. It feels but if more you're natural. an artist, you're looking for, once you finish Asia, you're thinking, well, what can I do different on the next one? That's true. You know, yep. and um, it's kind of funny since we are a yacht rock podcast i had a a quote that i wrote down from a guy named paul sexton who's a music journalist and a broadcaster and he said that while asia had announced their even greater exploration of jazz influences gaucho is their yacht rock masterpiece really well i guess i would differ with that i don't know why but it goes back to steely dan being on the weird part of the yacht because they're i know so jazzy i agree i agree yeah. Um, but they also have some classic rock tunes that don't sound yachty right. at all. Huh. But lyrically, I really find this album interesting. Uh, just wanted to restate that because I know we're going to start probably getting close to the song by song. But it reminded me of a conversation I was having a few weeks ago with uh, Dane Donahue. 
mm. where we were talking about some of the songs that we're going to be working on. And um, he had one that was um, called Chinatown, and it kind of alludes a little bit to Asia. But talking about this whole thing back then, he said that people love to write about L.A. mythology. And that mm. was like a term back then, L.A. Myth- mythology. So you've got... It's a combination. It's that hard mix of sunshine, beauty, lazy by the beach, mixed with the dark night drug culture. And mm. the two, and it, it provides interesting stories. And that's a lot of what's on this record. Yeah. I'll say, especially as told from the perspective of a New Yorker, which I think adds a new flavor to it. A New it. Yorker that went to LA, spent time there. Now they're back in New York where they can go and point fingers, right? <laughs> <laughs> what better? Far enough away. Fagan and Becker to do that to point fingers. Yes. Oh, yes. interesting. All right. Well, do you have anything else? I, I was ready to get into the track by nope, track that's as well. It. Let's, uh, let's get into that. Oh, I, before we do, last couple things is um, just personnel on an overall stand, uh, basis. This has, you know, too many to probably name. There's going to be some new names that we'll talk about. Because of the East Coast. Because of the East Coast thing, yes. And there's going to be some hidden old names that I found interesting. Um, But what I love about this album is it has the Mount Rushmore of Yacht Rock drummers on it. It's got Rick Barada, Mm -hmm. Jeff Picaro, Bernard Purdy. Yeah, and Steve Gadd. It does. It's perfect. Though it's questionable how much they played. And Wendell. So and Wendell. Yeah, (laughs) certainly Purdy and Picaro played. A fair amount. I, I'm, I'm still not convinced we're ever really hearing Murata, but uh, we'll, we'll move on and we'll but, go. Well, just that. last thing was conspicuous by their absence, though. No Jay Graydon. Oh, yeah. No Larry Carlton, asterisk. One, asterisk. I think, one place. Yeah. Um, I, I was just, it was, it's, it was kind of interesting to see a whole new bunch of cats. Yeah. Um, very sparse uh, Chuck Rainey on bass, only two tunes. Mm-hmm. He was kind of a fixture on Asia, as I recall. Yeah. Um, so you're going to give all my hidden notes away. Here. Oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> got to say about Victor Feldman. He's on here. Okay, all right, let's, yeah. let's dive in then. Track one, hit it. Babylon sisters, baby. You are so tired of hearing about that one. Yeah, but. Well, you, this is your moment. So I'll cede the floor. Okay. Well, first thing I noticed on this one is that it's not as though they hadn't done it before, but now the, um, Michael McDonald, who did all those backups so heavily on Asia has now been replaced by the, uh, female backup singers. Yep. Which they have used before, but in this one, uh, obviously they play a big, big role. So that's a big change right there. We're back to that sound. It is Bernard Purdy on this one, um, and this is uh, maybe one of his best shuffles. Man, when I listen close to that, and I would urge you to listen really close to what he's doing with the the opening and closing of the hi-hat within this shuffle beat, um, it, it, it's just, it's, it's one of his... so subtle, so too. Good. Yeah. So you mentioned the drums and the opening of the song. Right. Um, remember Asia, I said the very first opening song, which is Black Cow, mm-hmm. like just immediately seems to want to make a statement. Mm-hmm. I feel like they've done the same thing with the song. Agreed. Because it's so wide open. I love like, even in the intro, just the drums, there's so much space that the Purdy comes around to hit the one note like where you'd hit a crash cymbal, and yeah. it's just the tip of his stick on, on the, the bell of the yeah. ride. Uh-huh. And yeah. it's, it's so loud, it's a ting. Like, listen to this. Here yep. <laughs> and now it's like, all right, that's what this album is going to be. Maybe a little more chill, maybe a little more pristine, if you can believe it. If you can. Yeah. It, and maybe just a little more... 
I, and this is why I've always wondered why you love the song so much because it's not like there's no huge hook in it that I can. It's but the nuance. It, it's all the nuance. Yeah, a little nuance. Yeah. So that's the statement they're making with this tune. For sure. Tom Scott on all those horn parts. So, you know, he's the only one credited in horns on this. So obviously they did those horns one at Layered, a time, yep. you know. Uh, but lyrically on this one, it, this is like the ultimate, if you're going back to the L.A. mythology, this is the ultimate L.A. mythology line. I mean, drive west on sunset. You know, that's how the song starts, you know. And it just goes so perfectly with the later on, here come those Santa Ana winds again. I mean, those two mm. lines are so iconic to the whole Yacht Rock culture. In the West Coast culture, yeah, absolutely. Um, he's got the line in there, um, like a Sunday in TJ. It's cheap, but it's not free. <laughs> I love that one too. Um, TJ being Tijuana, I, I, yeah. He's got. Um, I had written down that the bridge lyrics caught my attention, and we'll kind of revisit this a little bit later. But he says, uh, "My friends say no, don't go for that cotton candy, son. You're playing with fire. The kid will live and learn as he watches his bridges burn." From the point of no return, the whole watch out for that cotton candy thing. I think uh, becomes. You talking about nose candy? Uh, I don't think so. I think he's talking about a uh, a young lady, maybe too young. Don't go for the the young stuff. Gotcha. That's what I think. Well, then the next song he's writing about eight nineteen. Right. I know. That's what I'm I'm tying that to. But what does the chorus then mean? Babylon sisters, shake it. You got to shake it, baby. You got, you know. To me, that's just is that just like temptation. Uh, probably. Out yeah. Of that? Yeah. That. Yeah. Good point. Well, quick side note, totally off the lyrical content, but you know, one of the Babylon sisters is singing there. Yeah, Patty Austin. Right. That's cool. Like yeah. I had no idea. Listen to that I song a million I times. Can pick her out now that I know it. Same with me. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you have anything else in lyrics? I had a question on the instrumentation no, here. Is that a different electric piano than the E Rhodes? I don't think so. It's being run through a um, like a, a phaser. Okay. But uh, one of the points to make on this album is that um, Fagan is playing the Rhodes on every song, which previously they've been using other people like Paul Griffin or whoever. Victor Feldman. But he plays differently. If you, even if you watch him play, he kind of lays back and doesn't play a lot and then stab. Boom, 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 bam, stab. And you, you can really hear that he goes from really quiet to really banging that thing hard. That's like his style. And so that's why you're hearing some of these notes really jump out at you. And I think I think he's quasi-producing it in that way, in, t- in wanting others to do the same. Because if you listen to the first quarter of the song before you really get into the hook and everything, it's at times it's just drums and bass. Mm-hmm. And then everyone's kind of adding a little stinger there little and a thing. stinger there, right. and it all blends perfectly together. And then it all builds, and then it becomes this lush, you know, fabric. It's awesome. And that is the Purdy Shuffle, is it not? Iconic. Yeah, yep. that, that's a perfect Purdy Shuffle right there. That might be a carryover. I know one of these songs, I haven't been able to identify which, is a carryover from the Asia Sessions, and I'm guessing it's that one. No, I know which one it is. You do know? I do know okay, which one Okay, because I know that Bill Schnee was given a Grammy for this record, though he says he never really worked on the sessions. It was something that he had recorded for uh, Asia that got used for this. Okay, well, put a pin in it, All because right. uh, I, I'm going to use that as you a cliffhanger. Yeah. All right, well, then well, let's move on to Hey 19. This one's the, one of those songs that instantly put you on the boat, as I recall. Oh, as soon as I hear this hanger on it right here, hit it.
and that's why, like, uh, Gaucho, I will admit, has never been my favorite record. I would have never placed this. But that on drum this groove there, that, that doesn't feel slushy to you? In a good way, though. Okay. All right. In a good way, yes. Right. Yeah, that's that's all Wendell. And they're, yeah. they're not particularly perfectly lined up, but I think in their mind, because it came out of a computer, it must have convinced them that they were. <laughs> probably. Probably. This is another song where at times it's just bass and drums and then stingers again. But listen to the roads, especially um it's it, it's very, very heavily um accented, so you'll play very minimal and then bam, especially you check out the uh the outro. I'm gonna play a little of that outro and listen to how hard he stings some of these notes and then falls way back into the mix. Mm-hmm. He's definitely got a style. He does. Yeah. And so that would make the instrument feel different because he's, when he hits that, he's hitting it, you know, pretty much as hard as he can hit it. So you're getting all of the growl out of the, the yeah. instrument. It matches his personality, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it sure does. be cutting and then smooth and, and, then, and just quiet. sit back. Yeah, that's yeah, it. He'll, he'll lay out a line and then just sit back and see if anybody gets it. Right. <laughs> Usually I don't. Yeah. Um, interesting about that, you fast forwarded to that place. I never realized, I mean, Going back to Asia, let me set it up, is that we, we talked about how there's extended periods of time where the, the music's just vibing and there's no particular solo, but everyone's kind of doing a little something. Yeah. The verse chorus, verse chorus of this song is done at a minute 50. Yeah. At that point in time, there is still three minutes and 13 seconds left in the song. Yeah. And they're adding little nuances here and there, and they start doing the Quervo gold and whatever, but it's basically that groove. Isn't that another iconic thing, though, of, yeah. uh, of the yacht rock lore or the LA mythology, that Quervo gold, the oh, fine yeah. Colombian? Yeah. I like that I read somebody who made a comment about that line, said, at this point, when you get to the song, so this is like the, the cotton candy uh, continuation right. in my, yeah. my mind with the 19 year old. And, um, at this point in the song, they think that they're being purposely ambiguous as to the Cuervo Gold line. Is just laying that out there, but you're not sure is who is he like having some smoke and Cuervo by himself? Are they sharing it together? Mm-hmm. What, what's going on here? It doesn't feel that it needs explanation. Right, exactly. Right. Or does he want to incriminate himself? Yeah, well, that, um, that's 19's true, okay, I guess. I like the uh, skate a little lower now. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, does that put you in the era? <laughs> yeah, it does. Couple skates. Yeah. Uh, but this one, again, outlier for me. I love this song so much. Um, but I, it feels like it's from a different session. And that's not the one. This is not the one. Yeah. Well, there's a um, the, the outro solo, that sort of um, wind instrument. I think that's... Uh, I think it's a synth being played with a wind controller that you put in your mm. mouth and you blow harder or softer to make the synth respond. It's not credited that way. Yeah. Um, and there is an instrument that Tom Scott plays called a lyricon uh-huh. on this, in- on this, in- which is an electronic wind instrument. I just wonder if that is what that is, even though it's not credited that way on huh. the record. It doesn't sound like the melodica thing, the little you know no. blow thing. It sounds electronic, but it sounds – it just says synth solo yeah. on it, on the record. You know what it sounded like to me is the early synths when they were trying to mimic a harmonica. Mm-hmm. That's the sound but that it used feels to come like out. there's more articulation there going on, like a like he has a breath controller going. Ex- yeah, I'll agree with it's that. It's just a guess. Mm-hmm. Well, man, we're only two songs in. We're two songs in. And at the beginning, we said we could talk about this record forever. Yeah, probably we're not going lo- to though. Longer I than promise. the record even is, right? Yes. Definitely How many minutes that. are we in now? We're probably about thirty-five in already. Well, should we take a break and make it two episodes? 
I think so. I think I'd, I'd rather this album is all about the detail, and yeah. I'd rather explore the detail than just skim over it. Okay. Well, we've cracked two songs, so probably the two most famous, and then we'll get to the rest of the record next time. Sounds good. All right. Well, then let's do a uh, quick lightning round to yes. get us out of this episode. All right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Cue the sound effect. All right. So I'm going to save my Steely Dan specific lightning round stuff to the end of next week's episode. Okay. So I'm going to go off the map completely. Yep. I'm going a little random too, I think. Okay. Um, This is super random. Does it float your boat? My Cherie Amour. Do you know In what a word? <laughs> no. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, if you're talking about uh, the Stevie Wonder version, absolutely I'm not. No. Oh, good. I heard on Yacht Rock Miami a disco funk Yacht Rock disco. I don't know what of, it is. Of My Cherry Armor? <laughs> yes. Really? My Cherry Armor. By a, It was totally instrumental by oh, this yeah. group Rhythm Heritage. Okay. Do you have any idea who Rhythm Heritage is? No, but I'm going to dig it up right this, now. Well, this is going to blow your mind, but here, first play the song. Now, that recording definitely sounds yachty. It's obviously more of the disco side, but they, the sounds of those instruments, for sure. Okay. So you don't know who they are? No, the I do not know who the players are. So they got famous because they had a number one single for the theme from SWAT. They did the theme from SWAT. They did. The, the, the one that was the, on the one that they used. Oh it my. sold over one million copies. I don't know how that didn't make it on tour or it's seen on TV. We're going to have to add it in well, somehow. we can't know everything at every moment. No. So we, we learn as we go. But they also did the theme from um, Beretta. Sweet. <laughs> And they did, um, do you have it up on there? Yeah. You pulled up. They did one other one. I think it was White Shadow, maybe. Well, they have the theme from Rocky, but I don't think that's the original no. version, right? They also did okay. uh, an album called Disco Derby, but forget all of that for a Disco minute. Disco Derby, yeah. <laughs> Let me, because I had no idea who this Rhythm Heritage is, so I'm thinking, yeah. you know, some kitschy whatever. Yeah. Okay. Rhythm Heritage was formed in 1975 by producer Steve Barry mm-hmm. and session keyboardist Michael Omartian. Oh. Uh. It included bassist Scott Edwards and drummer Ed Green. Other musicians who played on the recordings included Victor Feldman, hmm. Jay Graydon, oh yeah, James Jamerson, wait, yeah, Ray Parker Jr. Never heard of him. Dean Parks. <laughs> nah. That's who Rhythm Heritage. Oh my god! How am I just finding this out now? I have no idea. It's well, amazing. You found it out uh, at least a few hours before I did. I know more than that. Holy! I've been sitting on this for a couple weeks. Nice, but it is kind of tied to Steely Dan because of all those session players. Aren't? Yeah, yeah, because they they were the model. Unbelievable! So check that out. Well, I don't have anything nearly as cool as that to offer of for not. Float Your Boat, but um, I think this is one that is debated, and I'm not sure where I come down on it, and I'm going to see if you can convince me one way or the other. Okay. What's your thoughts on All Night Long, Lionel Richie? Oh.
no. Yeah, I'm kind of a no, too. I could see where people want to put it in and me why too. they want to put it in, but it, to me, it's a no. No, part of it's contextual. You know how I always bring that up? I hate to I know. Keep, it's like that's not the right context for me. To I, me that I don't was disagree with that at all. 80s childhood. Yeah. And probably, you know, there's this, synth bass, and et cetera. But no. Um, rhythm of the Night. And I, what's, what's the one uh, running in the shadows? Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my running with the Night. Running with the uh, Night. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that one for sure is. Yeah. Yes. Lucas kills that. Okay. Well, have you got a buried treasure handy? I do. Uh, I've been debating which one I want to go with. Um, but I've been sitting on this one. This is pr- You're probably going to say, oh, it's not really buried because this was a, I think it even wasn't number one for them. But I don't feel that it gets in the Yacht Rock circle, it gets as much play as some of the other songs by Toto. So this is a Toto tune. And I think this is superbly yachty, whereas some of the other stuff, I don't really see the connection. I, I don't see it, as we said, like for Rosanna. I, I guess I, I could see the connection, but I don't, it doesn't feel yachty to me. Yep. That, that aside, I think one that's overlooked a lot is I'll Be Over You. Some people live their dreams Some people close their eyes Some It's very ballady, if that could use a word. It is, but it's got a certain pulse and groove to it. It's not just a straight-up power ballad. It's a, you know, yep. it's got that syncopated kick and bass drum thing going on underneath it. I love it the feel tune. a little less. It's almost like a mid-tempo ballad. Yeah, it is. I yep. love the tune though. Love the guitar lead. Mm-hmm. Well, for my buried treasure, I don't know how yachty this is going to be. I think it's pretty buried. And again, you being from the era, I may say like that's not buried. That's a, just a straight-up hit. But I don't think I ever heard much of Glenn Fry's River of Dreams before recently. On a dark December morning, when the sun refused to shine, spent another sleepless night, got so much on my mind. I think I finally know what's wrong. I think I gotta leave this place behind. I gotta say, I don't know that tune, but, um, you know, to me, production wise, obviously it's. Too big and anthemic, uh, big gated reverbs and DX7 stuff to be yachty. But I can get where the smooth uh, kind of AOR feel comes from. Yep. And I think that. we found out that was 1992. Yep. So obviously way too late. But it's got some of that like alternating sax line in there that just, it sounds about as yachty as Glenn Fry was ever going to get, I guess. So anyways, it's... It, you don't remember it. I remember it yeah. like it was yesterday. It probably was. I probably wasn't listening to a lot of radio by the time the 90s came along. Yep. Wow. And I doubt I, I was I, listening to Easy Listening, but yeah, I do remember yeah. it, and it's buried. Now it's unburied, so there. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, get off, the, off map the map and then hand it back to you. Yeah. Um, let me see here. So this is, I'm, I'm going to, I've got a, some proto-yacht in here. Do you know uh, the band Gallery? No. Do you remember, so you don't know the song, I Believe in Music? I know that song. I know from Mac Davis. Well, it's a Mac Davis cover. So here's uh, Gallery's version of the Mac Davis. It's from 1972, I Believe in Music.
It certainly has some pretty uh, uh, feels in the bass and uh, the recording. It's funny, I remember the Mac Davis version, but I know we had Mac Davis records in the house, and so that was the definitive version of me, but it looks like this is probably the more popular one. I think it was. The compilations that it's on here yeah. on Spotify. And probably slightly more Yachty. Again, yeah, proto-Yachty, yeah, but still a little more Yachty. Yes. All right. Well, last but not least, off the map, um, I had this one written down, and I'm gonna. I haven't heard this song since I wrote it down. I wrote it down at some point when I heard it and said it's got to go on this list. I can't recall it in my head, but we're gonna revisit it and do it live right now. This is Anne Murray. When I can't have you. When I can't have you. Well, two things on that that will tie it into Steely Dan. One is, uh, do I hear Wendell? <laughs> Yachty drum machine. <laughs> yeah, so I hear Wendell playing the drums machine. And then it's not Michael McDonald in there or even probably had anything to do with it, but I felt like those backup vocals felt like a Michael McDonald arranged backup kind of arrangement. Yeah, I was starting to wonder how many beers I had when I wrote that one down <laughs> because uh, the verses of that were like kind of just laying there. And then we got to the chorus and that interplay started happening. I'm like, oh yeah, that's probably why I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why. It feels yachty. But I did have it written under off the map heading. Right. So you weren't too drunk. No. No. At least I knew where to put it. It was in the right, yeah, it was in the right note. Yes. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I'm excited to get back uh, to where we left off next week. Uh, we're going to come back, and I think where are we picking up with? We're the, picking up on glamour profession. Ooh, probably some more interesting lyrics. Yep. Coming off uh, Babylon Sisters and Hey 19. Mm. So, do you remember how we need to uh, sign off for our cliffhanger episodes? I think we just say ahoy. Ahoy. <laughs>